prayer. Father, that's a, that song we've just sung is a prayer that we want to echo again right now. Would you enable us to behold Christ? Enable us to behold the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who came as the Lamb to be sacrificed for the sin of the world, but who is also the roaring lion. Lord, would you enable us by your Spirit to behold Christ? Would we worship him in our hearts? Would we see his glory unfolded in this passage of Scripture? And Lord, would you enable us to worship you? And would you receive our praise and our thanksgiving? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And let me add my welcome to uh, Angus's. My name's Ashley, for those who don't know me, and I've got the joy and the privilege of getting to serve here uh, as the assistant pastor. Um, if you're new here, I'd love to get to know you. If you're visiting, please do come and uh, meet me, find me after the service. <clears throat> I want you to picture two, two figures in your mind, two numbers. Uh, first is nine years, and the second is 325,000 pounds. What's the connection? What springs to mind? Nine years and 325,000 pounds. Well, the first one, nine years, is the average waiting time for an allotment in Edinburgh City. Okay, number eight in the UK for the top uh, waiting times for an allotment. Now, if you don't know what an allotment is, that is, it's a little slither of land where you can grow veggies, usually rented from the council. Uh, to some people, <clears throat> having an allotment is just a, a pure hobby. But to others, it's not simply growing vegetables. It's much more. Many of us are disconnected from the land. Uh, we are not involved in the processing, the picking, the planting, the sustaining, the growing, all the harvesting of any of our food. It's done by others. And so growers and passionate allotment folk want to restore that connection to the land. Uh, we're seeing an increased desire of this with the rise of community gardens uh, throughout the Western world. Uh, and many of these people claim having an allotment, being part of a community garden, uh, brings a deeper connection to the ground, to the world that they live in, but beyond that, to a community as well. And this is attractive to people. That's nine years. That's allotments. The second figure, 325,000 pounds. Uh, according to Lindsay's, a reputable um, solicitor, we'll have you know, that is the average house price for a house in Edinburgh. I think it's a lot more, to be honest, but apparently it's £325,000. The desire to own your own home is basically a given for many of us, right, in the Western world. Somebody says that they long to own their own home. Nobody's going to question that. Why is that? Is it because we're passionate about bricks and mortar and stone? No, I don't think so. Yeah, for some it is simply an investment, but actually for others, owning a property is much, much deeper. It means much, much more. For others, your home is your place of safety. It's your place of security. It gives you meaning and purpose and satisfaction. The passage that we're dealing with tonight draws out some of the similar themes that are echoed from the desires of wanting to own an allotment, and for owning your own home. At first, the division of the land might just seem like a portioning up of some strange real estate that we've never heard of, but actually the land represented and pointed to something so much more than soil 
And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, so if you're uh, just joining us for the first time, or if you're quite forgetful like me, let's just quickly orient ourselves uh, and remind ourselves where we've got to in the book of Joshua. As Angus said, it's the sixth book in the Bible. And uh, Joshua nicely portions up into four sections. Entering the land, chapters 1 to 5, we've done that. We've crossed over the, uh, the Jordan River. Uh, 6 to 12 is, is about taking the land. And Joshua and Israel have, have disarmed the Canaanite kings. Uh, their strongholds have been defeated. Uh, so the alien invaders have entered and the Pentagon has been disarmed. Uh, and now Joshua and Israel can get about this next significant portion of the book of Joshua, which is dividing the land. Okay, what's the significance of this section? What is it that we learn about the division of the land? Well, uh, there's so many things, but in light of the size of this section, we're not going to be working through every single verse, you'll be pleased to know. Some of you have work tomorrow. Um, But what we will be doing is drawing out some of these major themes and seeking then to apply them and ask the question how they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, we've got three of these. Number one, life in the land, this division of the land, this portioning up of the land, and life in it pointed to the Lord's faithfulness. Now, the theme of the land does not come up exclusively or for the first time in the sixth book of the Bible, okay? Um, If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter one with me. Genesis chapter 1. Many of us know these passages by heart, but let's look at them again. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. The Lord has made the heavens and the earth. And he says, the Lord said, now let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So Adam and Eve were God's representatives. Uh, They were placed in the garden with a task to inhabit the earth. That was their task. Sadly, those of us that know the Bible know the story of it. Due to their rebellion, Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. The life that was intended to be abundant blessing and intimacy with God was transformed into separation and curse, toil and pain. And from Genesis 3, uh, we follow this Uh, The biblical record records this kind of moral freefall until out of the chaos, in Genesis 12, God speaks. He calls a man, Abram, and he makes promises to him. In Genesis uh, 12, 15, and 17, Abraham, this this seed of a woman, said that he's going to be a worldwide blessing and that God's going to give him a seed. uh, uh, His descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars, and he's going to be given a land. Genesis 17 uh, says this, I'll make you very fruitful. This is God entering into covenant with Abraham. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be 
their God. Notice the, the Adamic-like, the Eden-like promises within here. He's going to be fruitful. He's going to be a blessing. He's going to increase in number. And this idea of the, the promise and the seed and the blessing uh, uh, is established with Abraham and develops throughout the book of Genesis. And it's this promise that God reminds Moses in the book of Exodus as he recalls his faithfulness. This is why uh, God is rescuing Israel from uh, slavery where they've ended up. And though Moses and the wilderness generation, they walk uh, the long way around to the promised land. That's what the book of Numbers is essentially about. As the pages of Deuteronomy open, that's the fifth book of the Bible, God recalls this. He says, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land. Uh, Moses says this to the people, to the land that the Lord swore that he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to their descendants after them. And so this theme of the land has been running from the earliest pages of the book uh, of the Bible, the books of the Bible. And now God's people, Israel, are in Canaan. God's people are God's representatives placed in this land to inhabit it, to be a blessing to the nations around them, to be a kingdom of priests is the word that Exodus uses, and to live in obedience to God's word. And so Joshua 13 to 22 reveals much more than just farmland. It's not about that. Part of that. It's about God's faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness to his promises, to his character. So you see, to speak of the land was to speak in terms of Israel's unique relationship to their God, intimacy with him. It's about an ancient promise connecting the faithful God to his people. As we uh, open up the, this portion, we see that the, the tribal territories are, are described in, in three ways. They're kind of portioned out in three particular ways. Uh, number one, it's kind of point A to B to C, a bit like a dot to dot. So have a look with me at chapter 15. <clears throat> the land is allotted to the tribe of Judah according to its clans um, and extended the territory from of Edom to the desert of Zin to the, into the extreme south. And then he lists uh, a number of territories from the, the southern boundary started from uh, the bay at the southern end of the Dead Sea. It crossed uh, south to Scorpion Pass uh, and continued to Zin and it went over to the south of Kadesh Barnea. So it's, it's locating geographical places and dotting them together, portioning out Israel's inheritance. That's the first way it's done. Secondly, the way it's done is it lists just a number of cities. Chapter 15, verses 21 onwards, lists a number of cities and apportions them out to particular tribes. Another way uh, that this is revealed, the portioning up of the land, is it, it kind of describes um, the, the area's kind of uh, outermost and innermost extremities. So kind of it goes from here to here. And I'm not a mind reader, a mind reader, but I imagine as we read some of those things, we're maybe tempted to think that it's a bit boring. Our eyes begin to kind of glaze over and get a bit heavy as we hear about lakes and rivers and fields and portions and plains that we can't pronounce or we don't understand. But this is not boring. This significance, the significance of this portion would not be lost upon faithful Israelites. Uh, let me liken it to a story. You, um, imagine you've got a, a dearly loved relative. And sadly, this, this relative passes away, but this relative is 
extremely rich, and she's left an inheritance. And the lawyers have, have called you in, and the executor is, is reading the will. Who's going to fall asleep at that point? You know, are you? You're going to be wide awake. As would Israel, as they hear this inheritance being described and read out. You see, the land is a tangible reminder of the faithfulness of God, of the faithfulness of God's character. So every olive grove that produced fresh and beautiful pressed oil, every pomegranate or fig tree that produced sweet and succulent fruit, every single herd that was grazing that produced milk and cheese and meat for celebrations and for sustenance, every watering well that gave refreshing and life-giving sustenance was itself a tangible evidence of God's faithfulness, of his character, of the one who fulfills his promises to his people. He's the promise-keeping, faithful God. That's why we read from chapter 21, verse 45. Flick over there with me. This could be a summary of the entire book of Joshua. Chapter 21, verse 45 says this, Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. And so one of the reasons that this portion is here for us, for God's people in the first place, for the Israelites, was to remind them of God's faithfulness. It was to call them to remember God's character by looking around, looking around at the fulfillment of his promises in this tangible gift of the land. And it's not lost on us today as God's people, right? We experience and we enjoy all manner of God's things, all manner of tangible reminders of God's faithfulness to us as his people. You know, when we're tempted to feel discouraged or disheartened, or grumbly or disappointed at the lot that we've been given in life, whether it's our work situation, or whether it's our relationships, or whether it's our financial ability, whatever it might be, we too need to look around us at God's evidence of his tangible faithfulness. A practical way of doing this, just take two minutes when you're feeling low, when you're feeling down, maybe longer to reflect on the expressions of God's faithfulness to you in your life. Did you get up this morning and did you have food on your table? That's a fulfillment of Matthew 6. Do you have clothing to put on your body? Again, a fulfillment of one of God's promises. Do you have a roof over your head? Have you enjoyed the sunshine over the past few days? It's a fulfillment of Matthew 5. Do you have family that you enjoy the company of? That's the fulfillment of uh, the God who in Acts 17 says that he, from one man he made all nations and he appointed their boundary lines. The work that God's given us is a gift and a sign of his faithfulness towards us. These are tangible evidences of God's gracious provision and faithfulness towards his people and his faithfulness towards those who aren't his people. Because if you're in here tonight and you're not a Christian, then I'm sure you experience the joy of the sunshine today. I'm sure you've got a meal on the table today. I'm sure you have work that brings joy to your hearts. And this is because the God of the universe is gracious and kind and overflowing with gifts. If you don't know God, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then I would love to talk to you a little bit more 
uh, after the service, please come and find me. If you don't want to talk to me and that's awkward, perhaps somebody's brought you, talk to them. If you came in on your own, uh, then you can just um, uh, take a flyer on the welcome table out there and send us your details. We'd love to get in touch and tell you more about this gracious and faithful God. So what else about the land is significant? Point two of three, just to let you know where we're going. There's not ten points, just in case you were concerned. Point two of three. Life in the land was to teach Israel about covenant faithfulness or covenant obedience. A helpful saying that I read was the, the, the law and the land go hand in hand. The law and the land go hand in hand. So just as Eden was to be the place where God's people lived under God's bountiful rule, under his goodness, under his commands, Canaan was to be the place where God's people served God's purposes in obedience to his good and gracious word. Um, in your own time, take, um, take the time to read Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30 and just look at the connection between the obedience of God's people and the fruitfulness in the land. Or read Psalm 37, the connection between faithfulness to God and his provision, his physical material provision. So there's a direct connection between the faithfulness of God's people and the blessing that God is going to pour out to them in the land. And actually think about the success that the Joshua generation have had up until this point. It's the degree to which they have obeyed God's commandments. The degree, the degree to which as God has revealed his commands to Joshua and Joshua revealed his commandments to the people and they have obeyed them, they have seen success and blessing because of their obedience. Now, this kind of time in uh, the history of God's people is a, is a now and not yet deal, right? So Israel have not obtained the full inheritance of the land it's been promised. Notice chapter 13, verse 1 that was read to us. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord had said to him, you're now very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. And so what God's people need to do is to take God's promises and living in faithful obedience, they're to live and to work and to fight and to drive out and to obey until they've possessed the entire land. It wasn't just to sit back and coast. The call now, they've had God's promises, was to live in obedience, by faith. Uh, faith and obedience are two shoots that come from the same stem. This is probably not a good example of a plant because it's really dead. <laughs> faith is ordinarily living, true faith. And so faith and obedience are two Spring, they spring from the same stem, rooted in God's promises. Or, another illustration, they are two sides of the same coin which spring from the pocket of God's promises. Faith and obedience are two shoots that find their root in God's promises. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin that spring from the pocket of God's promises promises. Do you want to see somebody's faith? Look at their obedience to God's promises. And what we have in this portion for us is a beautiful example of somebody taking God's promises and working them out by faith in obedience. Caleb, glance with me at chapter 14, please, of Joshua. 
helpfully read to us. Caleb is a positive example of faithfulness, of obedience. And we see this in in four particular ways. Caleb's living faith, it recalls God's character. Notice in this section, verses 14, so from 6 onwards, Caleb recalls the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, the name of his God, no less than five times. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, 9, 10, I can't count, and verse 12. He does it six times. That's even better. We're learning as we're up here. He recalls the name of Yahweh. He recalls the name of the Lord six times. And to recall the Lord's name is to recall the fact that he is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Living faith recalls God's character. Living faith, secondly, recalls God's promises. Look at verse 10 with me. Let's read that out. Now then, this is Caleb speaking. Just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time that he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. That's a promise taken from Numbers chapter 14, verse 30. And the promise is that none of the spies except for Caleb and except for Joshua will walk in the promised land. And and Caleb here, what he's doing is he's recalling that promise. He's saying, God promised that I would walk in the land. God has demonstrated his faithfulness by bringing me into the land. And so his dynamic and living and active faith that's going to lead to obedience is recalling God's promises. Thirdly, living faith is vigorous. Look at the vigor of Joshua's, uh, of Caleb's faith. He says, I love this, partway through verse 10. So here I am today, 85 years old, and I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I love this. <laughs> he's 85 years old, and yet he's saying, I'm still just as strong. That's a picture of living faith, right? doesn't matter of your age, because your faith is in the eternal, strengthening, life-giving God who rules and who reigns. As I was meditating upon this passage, I was struck particularly by two members of the congregation here. There are more, and I'm not going to name them, but older in years, and yet their faith is vigorous. It's living. It's active. Demonstrated in all kinds of ways. Providing meals, sharing God's word, sharing encouragement, meeting with young people, opening their home, discipling them. And I think this is a challenge to some of us that are maybe older in years that want to maybe dismiss responsibilities that actually if our faith is living and active and dynamic if Caleb is going to be an example for us then actually faith is going to keep us vigorous now I don't want people to feel condemned at all if they're older and infirm and unable that is not the intention but to look at Caleb as an example. So living faith is vigorous. Fourthly, living faith acts boldly for God. Look at verse 12 with me. Uh, Caleb doesn't want the easy ride, does he? He says, now, give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. Just as he said. And so for context, the Anakites are these giant, fierce, uh, war-like people that made the Israelites feel like they were grasshoppers in their sight. And so Caleb's not asking for an easy ride. He's not asking for the cruise ship kind of patch of land. He's saying, no, no, no. 
give me the toughest spot. And he's not saying that because he thinks he's amazing. He's saying that, look at this, look at the end of verse 12. He says, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. Living, active, obedient faith takes hold of God's promises, acts boldly for God, puts them into action. And so I think, again, in part, this section is here so that future readers will read it and look to replicate the faith, replicate the obedience of Caleb. That's a positive example. We're also sadly reminded of a negative example. Turn with me to chapter 17. In contrast to Caleb and his positive, vigorous, promise-appropriating faith, we've got the tribe of Manasseh. And I think Manasseh's here for one reason, to serve God's people as a warning. Look at verses 17, 7 to 10 with me. 7 7 to 10 outline the, the territory that Manasseh is given. And it's no small portion. Look at verses 12 to 18. Yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. The people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you allotted us only one portion of land and one share for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, Go up into the forest and clear out the land for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephites. What we see in Manasseh are three particular things, three examples of faithlessness. Faithlessness compromises. So God specifically said that Israel were not to make treaties with these nations. That command is littered all throughout Exodus, all throughout Deuteronomy. It tells them exactly why they're not to make treaties with these nations. Look at verse 13. The Israelites grew stronger, but they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor. They did not drive them out. So rather than expelling them out of the land like they were commanded to do, instead they probably saw some helpful hired work. We'll just we'll have them as water carriers. We'll have them as uh, wood choppers. We'll use them as forced labor, do the things that we don't want to do. They compromised on God's word. Unfaithfulness compromises. Our faithlessness, that's a word, not unfaithlessness. Faithlessness complains. Have a look with me at verse 14. The people of Joseph said to Joshua, why have you allocated us only one portion of land and one share of our inheritance? We are a numerous people. And on the surface it thinks, well, it seems like he's got a good argument. They're numerous, they've only got a small bit of land, but two things. They had a large size of land, and it was the Lord who allotted them their inheritance. So essentially, they're complaining of what the Lord has given them. And we can see this by Joshua's response. He tells them, go and clear this land, but they don't want to do that. Faithlessness compromises, it complains. Faithlessness is crippled by fear and doubt. Look at me at verse 16. The people of Joseph replied, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live on the plain have chariots fitted with iron, both those in Bethshan and its settlements, and those in the valley of Jezreel. These people had seen the Lord defeat numerous armies, 
They'd seen the Lord part the water of the Jordan. They'd seen the Lord bring down wars. They'd seen the Lord do wonderful works. And yet they're crippled by doubt and fear because of some chariots. I think Manasseh certainly gives us a picture of facelessness. And actually there's more within this division of the land that hints towards this facelessness, that it was more than just the nation of Manasseh. We can see actually Israel's failure to complete the task of inhabiting the land. Uh, So the Deuteronomy 7 says that the driving out of the nations within the land was to be a gradual thing so that the wild animals didn't overtake them. But the Israelites were complacent and fearful. Uh, There's an ominous note, uh, chapter uh, 13, verse 13. Glance there with me. But the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Maacah, and they continue to live among the Israelites to this day. Flip across to 1563. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. Go across to 16, verse 10. They did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gaza. To this day, the Canaanites lived among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. We see what's in the minor key here, what's in a minor note, becomes a major key in the book of Judges, especially as chapters 1 and 2 open. Israel did not drive out the Canaanites. They conquered the land, but it was quite another thing to settle in it and to reach all the territories. They were called to drive out the inhabitants of the land, but they ignored it through fear and complacency. And it seems it's indicating, actually, that Israel probably thought that they were in no immediate danger. If these guys were subjected to them, they thought, well, they're, they're under our control. It's totally fine. But it was the presence of these nations that led Israel to sin and to worship false gods and ultimately led them to exile from the land. Okay, so what, what lessons can we learn as God's people from these passages? 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these passages are here for us to learn by these examples. So what are we to learn, Charlotte Chapel? Well, firstly, Caleb is an example of positive obedience to us, right? And the question is, are we going to take God at his word? If faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin out of the pocket of God's promises, are we going to take God's promises and walk in obedience to God in our lives. What area of your life, personally, or even our life as a corporate body, do we need to recall God's promises in order to walk in obedience? Think about this for yourself. What area of your life, individually, do you need to take hold of God's promises in order to walk in a greater degree of obedience? What is it that you're fearing tonight? Maybe it's something that's up and coming this week, next week. Uh, Maybe there's a person or a situation or a relationship in your life or a desire that is dominating your thoughts in a negative way. And what you need to do is you need to recall God's promises, his faithfulness towards you in order to walk in obedience to him. Caleb's our example there. Perhaps we need a warning from the life of Manasseh. Are you a complainer? 
Do we complain about God's gifts, whether they're material or spiritual? Do we complain about his church? Do we complain about his, his providence, the way that he's worked and working in and through our lives? All of these things dishonor his name, and all of us, as we see these seeds in our heart, should repent, ask for forgiveness, and ask for a greater degree to obey and love the God who has saved us and has provided innumerable gifts for us. Perhaps for you, though, actually, you're a compromiser. The story of Israel and their compromising with the nations of Israel is an illustration of that, of that great phrase from John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And let me give you a quick story. Um, my uh, children, two of them, Grace and Joel, were helping out um, our neighbors on their front lawn. They came out and they were uh, de-weeding the lawn, uh, a small patch, and so the kids went over to help. Uh, and the neighbors were warning. They were saying, well, just, just don't touch those weeds, the, the big spikies, they called them. They were gnarly. They were huge. They obviously hadn't touched their, their, their front garden for a while. But, but my kids were able to kind of uproot these ones that had just started growing. It was much easier to uproot the weeds at the beginning stage than those that had formed deep and seismic roots. You see, the nations were not a huge presence at this point in this part of God's revelation. 17 uh, verse 13 says that, right? That actually they had them under forced labor. Therefore, Israel was stronger than them, seemingly so. They were the spindly weeds, so it seemed. But actually, they were told specifically to drive them out. And here's a question for you. What elements of your life, what behaviors, what relationships, what sins in your life that God is telling you to kill or to avoid that you think are under control and therefore are willing to dismiss? What sins that God says must be put to death are you happy to cohabit with? Is it gossip? Is it lust? Is it bitterness? Or impatience? Or greed? Or pride? Or envy? What we see in chapters 13 to 22 are echoes, they're pointers, they're warnings of these small disobediences to God's word, these seeds of, of sin and disobedience, and these small allowances that led to huge problems later on. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing us. Put them to death, and we do so. How? Not by mustering up enough strength, but by appropriating God's promises, by his word, that he's put... He's disarmed the power of death and disarmed the power of sin in the power of the gospel through Jesus' obedience, through Jesus' death on the cross, through his resurrection. And he now, by his spirit, gives us the strength to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness, yes to his word. The final thing we're going to look at today that the land shows us is how it was to be a place centered on the worship of the one true God. Life in the land was designed for worship. And we see this, uh, firstly, that there are priests mentioned all over. Uh, turn with me to chapter 14. 
14, verse 3. Sorry that we're flipping back and forward. It's easier if you've got a paper Bible. Sometimes it can be difficult swiping on the screen. 14, verse 3. So Moses had granted the two and a half tribes their inheritance east of the Jordan, but had not granted the Levites an inheritance among the rest. For Joseph's descendants had become two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, but the Levites received no share of the land, but only towns to live in with pasture lands for their flocks and herds. I'll flip over to 18, verse 7. The Levites, however, were not, uh, would not get a portion among you because the priestly service of the Lord is their inheritance. So the repeated refrain that the tribe of Levi... They didn't have a physical inheritance. They didn't have a land portion like the rest of the tribes. Um, You'll remember that Levi as a tribe, uh, they were the ones who were descended from Aaron, and they were to be the priests. They were to uh, perform the sacrifices. They were to to recall and retell the law. Uh, They were to to, uh, administer um, the, uh, the, the Torah to God's people. They were to represent the people to God. And so they had no, no physical allotted boundary land. They were given towns and pasture lands. And which is amazing because they were given towns and cities throughout every single tribe in Israel. And so every single tribe in Israel would have priests in towns scattered throughout the whole of the promised land which meant that wherever you were in Israel, you were never too far travel from a priest, one who would tell you the Torah, one who would be able to tell you about the right sacrifices, one who would be able to reveal to you the words of the Lord, the one who could instruct you about God's law and who could rightly advise an Israelite about sacrifices. So just like Adam had a priestly duty in the garden, this new Eden would be a place where the knowledge of the Lord covered the land administered by these priests. And so this land was made for worship. We can see that through the, because of the priests throughout. But secondly, we see this because of the, uh, the shape of the end of the book of Joshua, the division of this land. Uh, can we go on to that next slide? Uh, so I've been really helped. I don't know if you can see that particularly by... Um, uh, uh, this, this particular scholar. Um, and when we take this wider view of the book of Joshua, we can see that the author has structured it in a specific way with us to focus ourselves on that center point. Joshua 13 to 22 neatly parallels forming a kind of literary structure or a sandwich. Notice the fill-in. It's the land apportioned from Shiloh. That's at the center. Why is that significant? Because the land that was apportioned from Shiloh was done so by the Lord from the tabernacle. It was the tabernacle in Shiloh that is the center of the division of this land. So the worship of God is central, seen as the priest throughout the land, but seen supremely in the shape of this structure with the tabernacle at the absolute center of the worship of God's people. And the tabernacle that represented God's presence, the place where heaven meets earth. The land was ultimately a place where God could dwell with humans, the place where God's space and the human space overlapped. 
It's an incredible place given by an incredible God for an incredible purpose. Sadly, those of us that know the storyline know that this didn't last. Israel didn't worship the one true God exclusively. They didn't live under his law. They didn't recall his promises and his character. And so then faced exile. And as they return into the land, there are promises made in Ezekiel that use language of the land, making a promise that there would be a new division of the land. But this time it would include non-Jews. It would include Gentiles. And as we open the pages of the New Testament, interestingly, the theme of land actually takes a back seat as we meet the person of Jesus Christ. It's he who comes onto the pages of Scripture. Matthew 4 reveals, and he is cast as a a new Israel. He is, uh, just in the same way Adam was tempted by the serpent in the garden, in the same way that Israel was tempted by the remnant of the nations that were surrounding them in the land, so Jesus was tempted by Satan and yet overcomes, fully obedient to God's word, fully obedient to God's covenant. Jesus is not only the new Adam, he's he's the new Israel, he's the new tabernacle. He's the one uh, through whom the greatest sacrifice for sin was made. He's the one, our object of worship and the means by which we come to know and worship God. He is the place where heaven and earth meet. This idea of a physical locality is actually one of the, the issues with the woman at the well that we meet in John 4. She's, she's confused. Well, my ancestors said we worship at this mountain, but you say that we worship at this mountain. And what is Jesus' response? They say, there's come a time where the Father wants those who are going to worship in spirit and in truth. And so it's the Lord Jesus who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It's the Lord, the Lord Jesus who demonstrates God's faithfulness to his promises. It's the Lord Jesus who is a picture of obedience and covenant faithfulness to the God who sent him. It's the Lord Jesus who is now our object and the center of our worship. He's our inheritance. He is our portion. And in fact, any good believing Jew understood that the land The physical soil and dirt was never really their inheritance. It was never really their ultimate lot. But it was the Lord himself. He was their portion. He was their treasure. To have him is to have everything. To have his promises and to hold fast to them. Even if we lose every earthly treasure that we have, every physical thing, including our life, means we still have everything. And incredibly, Jesus promises that If we hold fast to him, and even if we do lose our life, we'll gain everything that we can never lose. As Christians, that's why we live. That's who we live for. And as followers of Jesus, our call is to go to the ends of the earth, to proclaim the gospel, this living and dying and rising of the Lord Jesus, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And what we do is we create little pockets of promised land as we gather as God's people waiting for that great day when he's going to take the the thing that is unseen, the kingdom of God that is unseen, which dwells in our hearts at the moment, and he's going to manifest it in the new creation. The final book of uh, the Bible, this is as I close, the final book of the Bible pictures this this new Eden, this this new uh, Israel, this new Jerusalem, It does so in incredible language. Revelation uh, chapter 21 says this. 
John stood on a mountain and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And verse 22 says, And I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The desires and the longing for owning property or an allotment come from the sense and the need of security and satisfaction and hope. They're the desires that these, these things point to. But these desires themselves ultimately point to and are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. He is the one, the only one who can give us ultimate security. He is the only one who can give us ultimate hope and ultimate satisfaction. We as his people have the joy of knowing him, of serving him, of proclaiming him. So that one day, what we believe by faith will become sight. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the entire earth as the waters fill the seas. That's our hope. And until then, we walk in faithful obedience, walking the, the path that Christ trod ahead of us, and we center our worship and our dependence upon him. Amen? Let's help each other until that day comes. Let me pray. Invite the band up. Father, you're the inheritance of your people. You are our portion. You are our lot. You have provided all that we need in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance. Now, those that believe, we that believe in the Lord Jesus, have an inheritance now kept for us in heaven that will never perish or spoil or fade. And there's coming a day, Lord, when... All of this, the, the sinfulness and the curse of this earth is going to be done away with once and for all. And all of your promises and the realization of the great kingdom that you're building will be manifest tangibly on earth. And we will see you face to face until that day. Lord, keep us in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us rooted in your promises, we pray. And Lord, would our lives uh, be ones of worship as we seek to spread abroad the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us in this endeavor, we pray, and would it be for your glory. Amen. Let's respond to our God in praise and in thanksgiving as the band leaders in our final time.